Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. We're a global, open-access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in oncology. Today, we're delighted to welcome an international panel of experts on our first-ever GI Cancer VJ session, who will be talking about some of the most exciting data to be presented at the 2021 ASCO GI Virtual Symposium, and we'll be putting these advances in a clinical context. Chairing today's session, we have Toby Arkenau from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in London. He'll be speaking to Natalia Yuboa from the University of Wisconsin, Kaikin Xiu from the UCL Hospital in London, and Lizzie Smith from the Cambridge University Hospital, also in the UK. To kick us off, we're going to get some exclusive insight into the ongoing Phase 3 Keynote 177 study, which is looking at first-line Pembro in a subset of colorectal cancer patients. The expert panel will also be offering their perspectives on the Phase 2 fight trial and some other key studies targeting FGFR2, both in gastric cancer and cholangiocarcinoma. Other hot topics being covered by the panel include the latest advances in anti-HER2 therapy, promising CAR-T data, and the potential to use the gut microbiome to predict response to immune checkpoint blockade. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's GI cancer session with VJ Oncology. Hi, my name is um, Toby Ackner. I'm the Executive Medical Director for Sarah Research Institute. I'm medical oncologist and interested in, in GI cancers, and I'm really excited um, to first of all introduce you today to a team of experts in GI cancers who followed with me virtually this year the GI ASCO program. But before I introduce my colleagues, I want to thank VJ Oncology to really um, bring this new um, format on to discuss take-home messages from GIASCO. Let me introduce um, my team, esteemed team, Natalia Uboha, who is assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin. Um, she is GI oncologist, particularly interested in upper GI cancers and neuroendocrine cancers, and also member of the NCI GI task force. Hello, Natalia. Um, then Dr. Lizzie Smith. Lizzie is consultant oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology at Edinburgh's Hospital at the University of Cambridge. Lizzie is ESMO-GIA faculty member and also leads the ERTC GI task force. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Toby. Thanks for inviting me. And then Kai Keen. Kai Keen is a colleague oncologist at University College London um, with me here in, in London. His research interests are GI cancers, um, and he's also um, running several trials in GI immunotherapy trials, um, and is also leading the CAP task force um, here in the UK. So welcome to all of you, and I'm really excited to discuss with you um, the latest um, evidence and, and really also forward-looking evidence um, for hopefully a successful 2021 in um, GI cancers. Hakim, can I start with, with you? Um, you presented the Keynote 177 data. Um, give us a, a brief flavor, but also um, what I want to discuss with you are, are some questions um, I will ask you about um, the, the outcomes you, you presented. Sure, thanks Toby, and thanks for the whole team. So, so I was uh, honored to present the updated data on this um, phase three randomized trial pembrolizumab in first line versus chemotherapy. Um, and it kind of snuck a bit under the radar because I think no one quite realized when I presented it, we were going to look at this um, progression free survival two endpoint, which is important in this trial because there's a crossover. So this was, we'd already shown that um, pembrolizumab was better than chemo for PFS1, 16.5 um, months versus 8.2. But now with the crossover, everyone was wondering whether actually from a sequencing point of view, 
is Pembro first best, followed by chemo, or chemo first, followed by Pembro? And that was because of that slightly concerning initial drop in the PFS um, in the first kind of three to six months. So actually, bottom line, it showed that the curves continue to separate um, for PFS2. This is very interesting because there was a crossover of around 60% of patients who had some form of immunotherapy either within the study in the context of the crossover design or off study. And so actually, if you look at that, those lines, the, the median PFS2 was not reached at all. So I think 60% of people were non-progressing on their second line of therapy in the Pembro first arm, whereas it was only about 24 months for the um, chemo first arm. Now, we couldn't answer all the questions in the chat, and I'm sure you can ask me lots of questions. My general take-home message on this is that it's very promising as an interim analysis because we will get OS survival uh, data in the next, I think, few weeks, about the next few months. And I personally, I think this just, for me, means that it's still uh, a good thing for our patients to have immunotherapy in first line, as long as yes, there's all these little bits of, you know, should we sub biomarker patients, clinically biomarker them, stratify them. And that is for discussion, but it looks good. The lines do not cross. So I do think that for some reason, despite that initial drop in PFS, and we can talk about pseudo progression, things like that. Pembro in first line is still would remain the, from a phase three randomized trial, the standard of care treatment now for MSI high advanced bowel cancer. Very, very interesting and very well summarized. So one you know, question is, of course, the, the concept of PFS2. And we have used it in, in other um, corrective studies many years ago in, in the stop and go um, setting. So explain PFS2 to us. What does it mean and what do you want to capture? And what really, for the, the, the newcomer to this um, kind of question, what, 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 why PFS2? Yeah. Okay, so I think we wouldn't have asked this PFS2 question if there hadn't been a crossover. I think that's the first thing. The fact is that everyone wondered why FDA allowed it. You know, crossover ethically was the right thing. It would completely impair overall survival. Um, I wasn't at the beginning of the design of the study, but I think actually if we hadn't had a crossover for the chemo arm, we may not have recruited many patients at all, and that would have been a real thing. Now, in terms of PFS2, Everyone defines it slightly differently. And the difference is, even within this study, I think that the only clean data for PFS2 is in the within trial crossover. Because um, although I've seen some of the patient level data, it's actually really interesting. Once you get to off trial crossover, on trial crossover, it's a bit like tiger territory. I mean, you find out that the, the, the patient didn't want it or the oncologist felt it was better. They want to do secondary surgery or primary surgery. And it was quite strict, actually, how you crossed over within the study. So in terms of clean data, the only really clean data is the patients who were on chemo were fit enough to be rescreened to cross over the Pembroke and seamlessly, I would say, crossed over to Pembroke. Everyone else, I suspect, and so I see the other day, was a bit of a mashup of, you know, patient wasn't sure what they wanted, surgeons wanted to operate. And once you have those things, it's tiger territory or cowboy territory. And I still think, however, despite that, you know, you can never do a pure crossover study. So I think that even with the, um, when you saw the data table of the variety of um, off-trial treatments and trying to integrate that with patients who, for example, had had some more curative intent surgery or non-curative surgery, the numbers don't lie. I mean, it's still a lot of people coming, coming into the study. And 
the fact that there is no, um, you know, the, these kind of the, the tail on the curve remains high. And I think whatever's happened to the patients means that in real life, I just think that we've got to make sure that, you know, MDTs work properly, not just the standard MDTs, but the genomic MDTs. Um, and we continue to study this population through lines. And, and actually, you know, if you look at PFS2 data from the tribe trials or tribe two trials, it's still better, you know, these PFS2 results, whether within the study or study are 23.5 months is pretty good. So whatever's happening to the patient, they are living longer than we expect. Whereas previously we felt probably they weren't going to do very well. I hope that kind of answers the question. You know, as you know, your New England Journal publication, um, the subgroup analysis looked into the molecular genetics of um, these subtypes. And interestingly, the RAS mutant um, cancers didn't do so well as per um, subgroup analysis. Can you explain this? And um, particularly, um, you know, I guess you have the RAS status, um, but do we have other genetic alterations? Like we know in lung cancer, for example, KRAS, SCK11, non-responsive to immunotherapy. Are there similar um, data available? We haven't published them, of course, but, but um, along those lines, is there an early hint and a sign why these patients didn't do so well in the, in the subgroup analysis? Yeah, so there's the science bit and there's the gut feeling, right? So the gut feeling is, oh my <laughs> God, because first of all, we already are struggling with our KRAS mutant subgroup, and we'll talk about some other maybe interesting small molecules are coming through. But um, we know in the lung cancer field that KRAS mutant lung maybe don't respond to immunotherapy. Is that going to be contextual and similar in bowel? I think that the, the main thing that we have to say is we, I don't think we shot ourselves in the foot, but you know, when we planned the study, um, all these uh, pre-planned subgroup analyses were not um, statistically planned in that way. We just thought it was quite interesting to know. And the second thing is, um, for good or bad, we were really strict on what we say, whether we knew the entire genomic analysis. And, and when I mean entire, I just meant extended KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF. So if you look at the journal, the rule was, if you were missing any one of those three, that was unevaluable. Now, in real life, that's not how we run, right? So, for example, you do a, a rapid KRAS test. If your KRAS mutant, the presumption is you're not NRAS mutant or BRAF mutant because you hardly ever cross over. But and, so, and even in real life here at UCH, we don't always run the whole test if we hit the KRAS mutant first. So I think that we will, I mean, because we've asked the sites to give us that extra data over time, um, we will struggle because it's not biobanked per se to do extended profiling. So you've asked the question about TMB, SDK11, and I think that will come. But as you know, in re real life, this is a phase three trial, not a phase two trial, not a phase one trial. And you know, in some aspects, it's just you want to run with the clinical endpoints, which are quite solid, I think. And yet, then I think it's up to us as the academics and the clinicians on the ground to pull that data off. And we will. We've been told, I mean, honestly, by the sponsors that we will be allowed to do that. But you know they want to push very much for the primary endpoints. And then it's for us to kind of work out what to do in the future. And I said in some of my other talks that actually is in our gift to, to sort that out for you guys. But also, I think in the neagement setting, we will get those biomarkers in a, in a much more clean and, and quicker way for, for, for all our patients. Well, that's, that's very interesting. I assume lots of new and important outcomes of this study is coming and will be presented in future meeting. I think one of the key aspects of this study as well, um, when you presented, was quality of life. Again, our patients want to hear this. Um, 
how much do they improve or has their quality of life been affected? That's the, the day-to-day discussion we have with patients on the ground. So, you know, what, what did the study show? Well, I mean, I think that there were two things. There was the, um, there was the standard AEs, um, which were significantly better, the grade three AEs, 22% versus 66%. Um, but also in terms of, in, in fact, even the immune-related side effects, pretty safe, you know, less than 3% chance of a grade three colitis or hepatitis. But yeah, the ESMO virtual data was really nice because that, that, that showed the kind of, the patients had iPads essentially, and every time they just filled in their own quality of life, what they felt. And there are certain things that well, I can say now that, you know, weight gain, okay? So in fact, quite a lot of weight gain, some patients felt grossly overweight, um, you know, and actually said, I'm, I'm overweight now. And particularly when we're planning for surgery. So that, I mean, overall, I think for our patients, you know, it's nothing like having chemotherapy. If, if patients had had chemo in the adjunct setting, it's nothing like it. So from even from that point of view, it's better. And even now we go back to the KRAS subgroup, which I still think is a subgroup of the subgroup analysis. You can pretend that maybe for some of these patients, you regard immunotherapy as a block of therapy not necessarily the life-changing immunotherapy treatment for some of our patients, but it's still a good treatment that will keep them alive with good quality of life and fit for further treatment. And that in itself, I think, is worth having immunotherapy until we untangle all the other kind of milieu and and minutiae of of biomarkers. Good. No, that's um, very um, well summarized. Of course, the the, um, million-dollar question is, Give us an idea about the what what we can expect in twenty twenty one overall survival data. They're coming. Yeah, I mean this is I I swear I swear I don't know, but I mean I can predict that with those curves not crossing at two years, and if you think about some of the second line data we've seen from Keynote one six four and and from the checkmate studies, I think it's unlikely as long as it whether you had first line or second line treatment, you have not progressed after maybe eight months or a year. You, you won't really progress. A few of them will progress. So already you've lost the window of opportunity by not having primitives in first line. And you can see that the difference, which is around 15% difference with the second line therapy, will probably read out, okay, um, even to OS. And we are about to OS because that data we presented is almost a year old anyway. So that interim analysis was from February of last year. And we're about to, even if we don't get 190 deaths, you know, for OS, We've been asked, the IDMC and the statistical plan is to do the data lock in the next few weeks. So my prediction is that it will be clinically significantly different OS. The interesting thing will be the the, uh, the statistical difference may be closer than we expect, but I still expect to be less than 0.05, for example. Super, don't tell too much. So that's um, very exciting. I, let me switch and again, also your field. Um, in, in real novel analysis on CAR T cell and colorectal cancer, just talk us through. I think it's innovative, of course. Um, you know, you, you're um, beyond this. Yeah. So yeah, there was a, a post abstract um, by the uh, team in Belgium, and it was the Alishink study. Now this was interesting because it was only about 16 patients, but we're all looking to see whether CAR T cell were in solid cancers. Okay, so. At UCH, we are about we are doing currently the Chiron study in lung cancer uh, with uh, Charlie Swanton and, and Mary Aljani. Very exciting, um, but essentially this study is interesting because they're using what we call non-gene editing. So it's almost like off-the-shelf CAR T and kind of trying to engage natural killer cells. The the only thing I'd say is that 
And when I look at really the data, they were using various dose strengths for safety. They were using kind of some form of induction Folfox in the refractory setting to condition these patients. And the way I looked at it was actually there were only two responders, okay, out of nine. Okay, the rest was stable disease. Very little side effects because they were also targeting TIM, which is also a thing that stopped graphosis host. But I didn't know the patient level data. So my cynical view was some of these patients were not chemo refractory. Okay. And they were responding because they were platinum sensitive. But equally, I think it's important because they did do some really nice um, biomarker work looking at some um, gene expression assays and TCR complexes. And they did show that in one or two of the responding patients, there was a change in expression preference. So at least they were looking. I still think it's it's way too soon. And I mean, they're jumping already into thinking about adding pembrolizumab or some other immunotherapy to their kind of milieu. And it makes me um, excited to a degree, but slightly cautious that, um, you know, we're not there yet. Though I know that my patients or our patients are saying, look, I don't have the solid biomarker for MSI. Surely by gene editing, you know, we've seen it. And you know that those institutions in the US have done one or two amazing case reports, but they don't say all the failures. Okay, so they only talk about the successes. Um, so bottom line is very interesting study. It's an early kind of phase 1A to, to 2. They are going to recruit more. They're going to start adding other kind of uh, markers. I'd like to know what, what Lizzie and, and Natalia think in, in the upper GI and biliary tract field, uh, because at least it's the first time I've seen a uh, off-the-shelf CAR-T therapy delivered into a common solid cancer, like, like a GI cancer. Natalia, Lizzie, any, any comments? Uh, yeah, well, that's, a, I suppose, a widely expressed uh, target, and they've done... Uh, uh, they've done trials also in hematology diseases. I think that were presented at ASCO. I mean, and it, it's good to see the off-the-shelf or the allogeneic T cells being developed. Uh, I agree that you know it's very early days, and you know the activity is limited. It was said that the Falfox was given to lymphodeplete. Now, I agree with you in that I'm not sure that Falfox is the most lymphodepleting regimen that I can imagine. So uh, perhaps another regimen would tease out whether the benefit was from 5-FU and oxaliplatin rather than the CAR T cells. In gastric cancer, there has been one trial that was presented at ASCO last year on uh, Claudin-1812 targeted CAR T cells. It was a Chinese study. They, you know, it was slightly disappointing in that it did not show tremendous activity. There was some very minor responses in, I think, about 13 patients. But what it did show was on-target toxicity because some of the patients had GI bleeds. And I think this is the key when we're talking about CAR T cells, isn't it, with our epithelial antigens. So I'm not an expert, and I'm glad to see this being developed. It's it's very exciting. And, you know, we are seeing some also of the uh, autologous uh, HLA match trials coming through. I'm sure, Toby, you see them in Sarah Cannon as well. Uh, and, and, and that's where we need to be. But I think we'll all have to upskill on lymphodepletion and, and management of CRS. And uh, it's exciting times. So I think uh, it's early days, yeah. I agree. I think um, I, I don't know of any data of, of the cells, uh, uh, CAR T cells for hyperbilary cancers, but there are data coming out uh, for the um, CAR T cell therapies for upper GI cancers. Adapt Immune is launching a phase two trial with a CAR T therapy. I think in general, it's exciting to see this technology move into solid tumor field. 
I think it's it's hopefully will be um, a breakthrough that we will see in the next few years as well. Yes. Yeah, it's the view is coming in Upper GI as well. It's, it's, exactly, it's fantastic. Esophageal, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's what they're opening, not in particular the esophageal, but they have a study ongoing in HCC already. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's um, switch the, the, the gear to gastric cancer. Lizzie, that's, that's your field. And um, I, I summarized it effectively. Old targets, new drugs. Um, I mean, 10 years ago, we were targeting the FGFR receptor with various different small molecules. Now, you see a new come on, new kid on the block, Bemaritizumab, um, the fight data presented. Talk us through. Yeah, I'm very glad to see this. Uh, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised because when you mentioned 10 years ago we were working on FGF4 and gastric cancer, that was me. So uh, we were targeting it with uh, small molecules, TKIs. And really, these, these drugs worked, but it was very hard to find the right patients because you needed to find really highly amplified patients for them to be effective. So that 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 pathway of development didn't work for these for for these drugs. It was, just wasn't feasible. So what we have in the fight trial is bevaritzumab, which is an FGF4 two beta uh, monoclonal antibody, and they chose patients who expressed the protein at the IHC level and I think that was about 30% of gastroesophageal cancer screen so quite a high level and a smaller proportion of those were amplified so I'm really interested to understand at a deeper level what the pathways there are in terms of the amplification being connected to the overexpression. This was a small trial and this shows how difficult it is to recruit to biomarker selected studies in the first line setting for gastroesophageal cancer, because ultimately these patients have difficulty swallowing and we want to get them on treatment quick, so quickly. So sending their tissue off for biomarker selection has always posed a difficulty. It started out as a phase three trial and then came down to a phase two, but they did one aspect which was quite smart, which was allowing a cycle of Falfox before the biomarker results came back. And I think this is a good way to design trials for this patient population because it gives us that little luxury of time before the biomarker uh, biomarker result comes back. And they're getting standard of care in any case. So uh, the results were good. It, um, the Bemeritzumab improved overall survival response rates, progression-free overall survival by a couple of months. Uh, I will say that the control arm did well. You know, we often see this in, uh, in, in phase two trials. But I was fairly convinced uh, of the results, but it's a small trial. It's not going to change practice. What we need to do is, is see results in a larger portion of the population, I think. What I found quite interesting is um, the, the level entry was minister chemistry 2, 3 plus, and then um, 5%, 10% expression. And, and you clearly could see that the more than 10% um, expressors were, were did much better in terms of overall survival. And do we need to even in this selected group, um, like we do with um, PDA1 expression, um, have a high response spawner group and yeah. even do more? Well, this is, you know, this is what we learned uh, from trastuzumab and gastric cancer as well. You know, we know that these tumors are difficult to target with biomarker-selected drugs, first of all, because of biomarker uh, expression heterogeneity. And it took us, we're still working to optimize, I think, biomarker selection for trust, her two targeted therapies in gastric cancer. So certainly it seemed that the tumors that expressed higher levels uh, of the protein were more addicted to FGF42 signaling, as you might expect. Uh, and I, but I think in order to fully refine the biomarker, you probably need to treat more patients. And again, possibly refining it too early 
uh, before going to a phase three trial might make a phase three trial more difficult to uh, recruit to and to get this as a treatment for patients with uh, esophageal cancer. So I think that there's always a balance uh, and uh, very difficult to make those decisions early in treatment. So I was just going to ask Lizzie and Natalia that, you know, the FGFR pathway is better known in the biliary tract setting now, cholangiocarcinoma. So what, one, what is the difference of this inhibitor to cholangio world? And cholangio moved in a kind of snail pace with you know, cisgen for a long time and then added in these drugs in last line and then actually now looks as good. And if you look at some of the fight data, you know, uh, maybe some of these FGFR inhibitors are better than first line cisgem and they've gone straight into kind of that phase three setting. So the addiction pathway may be different or is it just a, it's just a, you know, you know, contextually gastric cancer is still a very difficult cancer to treat, you know, compared to maybe now inter-hepatic inter, uh, cholangio. So what's your feel of the drug versus the context versus compared to other tumor types? I think it's probably all of the above. I think definitely it's, it's a different way. The pathway is dysregulated in cholangiocarcinomas. In cholangiocarcinomas, the initial studies were done looking at any FGFR2 alteration, were done at FGFR2 fusions or no FGFR alterations at all. That was the initial design of the INSIGHT trial. And the only place where we see the signal with FGFI inhibitors is in cholangiocarcinoma, which are positive for FGFR2 fusion. fusion. And it could really be any fusion. There is multiple new partners that are being identified. The most common one is BICC1, but it really doesn't matter what FGFR2 is fused to. It's the, the fact that the fusion results in dimerization of this tyrosine kinase receptor, which is essential for its constitutive activity. It's the fusion that matters. And so in cholangiocarcinoma, we use small molecule inhibitors to target this pathway and trying to turn the pathway on. And it has been quite successful. And, and you're right, uh, it's being studied in second line, although now we're trying to move these drugs into the first line. But I think it's more the, it's the logistical issues, right? It's the rare cancer. Uh, it's only intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, primarily intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma that even has diffusions. Then we see it in 15% of the rare tumors, right? And it takes a while to get diffusion results, and not even every NGS test is providing reliable results on diffusion. So there's a lot of different limitations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While the way it was studied in gastric cancer, you looked at protein expression, which is different. You see the difference, you see similar difference in um, benefit uh, in this phase two study to what we see even in TOGA study, right? It's a two months benefit, right? In TOGA study that the addition of trastuzumab resulted in two months benefit, you know, survival or roughly that compared to Folfax. And yet nobody is questioning the use of trastuzumab in her to positive gastric cancer. So it's probably not as strong of a driver as it is in cholangiocarcinoma. I, I, I could, couldn't agree more. And also in gastric cancer, because you've got these really chromosomally unstable cancers, you've got co-amplification of multiple ORTKs mm. often. And so what you do, you know, you're playing whack-a-mole. So, you know, you treat HER2 and FGF4, EGF4 pops up. And, and I think that their really early resistance biomarkers are probably pre-existing in gastric cancer, maybe not to the same degree in colangio carcinoma. Yeah, I agree. I think chemotherapy is going to be part of the first line treatment for gastric cancer. These patients come in with a lot of symptoms. We need responses. 
yeah. and this is what chemo provides, right? And that's why when we try to compare immunotherapy to chemotherapy, well, people didn't do as well because immunotherapy, when it works, doesn't work fast enough in these patients. And as Lizzie said, people come into our clinic and they can't eat and you don't have time to wait for two to three months to something to get and you need responses. And so I think that's the difference in gastric cancer. We will be building, adding these targeted drugs to chemotherapy and hopefully defining the patient population who can benefit more. Well, in cholangiocarcinoma, we're actually trying to see whether we can avoid gemcis and just give them MG finding, but because it works well enough, yeah. hopefully, in first line. And is it just one, one question on toxicities? I mean, very classical FGFR toxicity, stomatitis, dry eyes, um, but not phosphate increase against probably the, the um, simply the biology. We're talking antibody against small molecule. But um, gastric cancer population stomatitis um, is not the most pleasant um, toxicity. How do you manage this? Um, and, and the investigators who did this study, how, how did they um, manage those symptoms? Uh, I, I, I didn't recruit to this study, but you're right that this is an on-target effect of FGF4 inhibitors. Uh, I was it, actually I was quite I was quite it was quite impressive that om almost a quarter of patients came off the study due to toxicity and I Not think that the, 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 yeah the, the stomatitis with FGF4 inhibitors when when I used these drugs before we often used uh, our, a special mouthwash you know uh, raspberry mucilage tended to help but it's it's actually quite difficult for the patients and I I think that could impact on quality of life as does the eye toxicity and. You know, with these drugs, you need to really make friends with your local ophthalmologist uh, when you're uh, treating patients on these drugs. And early intervention is important, and perhaps treatment breaks will be important as these move forward in development. But, but uh, how, how it was managed in the study, I, I can't comment on specifically because I didn't recruit. I was surprised to see in the abstract that it was a quarter of patients who went off uh, BEMA yeah. because of ocular toxicity. I have to say, we don't see as much ocular toxicity with small molecules inhibitors and cholangiocarcinoma. It is listed as a side effect. Ophthalmology is involved early uh, during clinical trials and now when, with, um, with a drug that's approved, but I have not seen significant eye toxicity with the drug that required discontinuation of the drug short of dry eye. So I was, I was surprised to see that type of toxicity with, with an antibody. I think it's a bit different from the small molecule inhibitors. Well, I think the, the antibody half-times, half-lives are maybe affecting this as well and, and effectively different to the small molecules with much shorter half-life where, where patients can stop. But, you know, really, I, I, I must say the eye toxicity is certainly um, of concern and no phosphate levels, again, which is that, that's the other thing we see in cholangiocarcinoma so often and, and that bothers us so many times. Phosphate levels are pretty much normal. Lizzie, one, one more, um, HER2, um, Zanidaramab, um, ZW25, um, um, an interesting drug, um, bispecific HER2 um, antibody. Um, talk us through this study and where do you see, particularly with in HER2 just being approved on the same day they presented these data um, by the FDA. So where do you see both drugs running um, into the first line and, and give us a bit of context? Uh, so I was quite interested to, uh, so the first thing I should say is that after TOGA, HER2 treatment and gastric cancer has spent 10 years in the wilderness. So we've had many negative trials in the first line setting. We had uh, 
Jacob, and in the second line, we had the Patnib, we had the TDM1 studies, and we have been disappointed every time, sadly, for our patients. So this year, we've really seen this massive explosion of anti active anti-HER2 drugs in gastric cancer, which is fantastic. And this ZW25, Zadatinib uh, being one of the, one of one of those, the other being trastuzumab deroxtecan, which just got a license as an orphan drug in the States, which is uh, fantastic. Uh, so this was a relatively early study, not too many patients. We looked saw activity of the drug as monotherapy, which is interesting, uh, 30% response rate, and also some activity with, uh, but regression-free survival was around, I think, three months, which is good for monotherapy antibody in this disease. Uh, and so uh, also activity with taxins. The field is getting cr quite crowded. At the moment, we have uh, we have ZW25, we have TDXT or trastuzumab deroxtecan, and we also have margituximab, uh, which has also mm -hmm. presented very nice data in Lancet Oncology, in particular in combination with pembrolizumab in dual HER2 PDL1 positive patients. So I, I think it's really a race to the finish. You know, I think we need to consider some perhaps the the, the toxicities of trastuzumab deroxtecan in particular ILD uh, on patients on long-term treatment may pose a challenge for bringing this into the first line uh, or into earlier lines of treatment. That said, I've had a lot of experience using that uh, in clinical trials. It's not something that I've observed uh, so far. Uh, so I think we really need to see, but we need to see larger numbers. We're basing our comments on the Japanese trial, which was a small number of patients, also an Asian population. We know that they respond differently to Western patients. So I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the data from Western patients for trastuzumab deroxtecan. What we will see is combinations, first of all, with chemotherapy, also moving into the perioperative setting. Hopefully we can cure more patients. But what, what we'd be really interested in is the breaking down of ever smaller molecular subsets. So I think what's interesting is in the mahogany trial, which is the first line trial of margituximab, plus or minus PDL1 or lag3, that in the super selected HER2 3 plus PDL1 population, we are they're going to investigate a chemotherapy-free regimen first line. And as Natalia just said, you know, it would take, it's a, that would be a tremendous uh, uh, achievement given the fact that we really need response rates first, first line. So I'm interested to see what we can achieve in that double positive population. But I think that that's only ever gonna be for very selected patients. And did you see any, they, they compared two different chemotherapies, obviously mono, CAPE plus um, thanidaramab and then paclitaxel. There was quite a different marked difference between um, the PFS and duration of response on the paclitaxel versus CAPE. This is small patient numbers, or do you see something, you know, better synergies, um, Please. I can't remember if they were first or second line patients, but I imagine if they were previously treated that they may be a little bit 5-FU refractory because we use 5-FU uh, in first line treatment. So that would be my working hypothesis. Uh, but I, I, to be honest, I, I think that it is small numbers and you're only looking at, I think, 10 or 15 in each of those lines. So I, I would be I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out 5-FU as a partner at this at this point in time. Can I ask? Go ahead, 
Is it, can I just so can I just ask you a, a quick question? So you're absolutely right. This bar market selection stratified is one way to go. But you've also said on the other side, chemo to rescue your dysphagic patient is also the way to go. And I think that you're absolutely right. If you go in with um, yeah, the Ruxtecan first, you you don't know what to do next. And I think the natural feel is that if you jump in too fast, you lack an option in the future. So my natural feeling is. And I'm I also biased because I'm running the phase three combo Pembro, you know, uh, Herceptin plus almost Pembro, and I'm seeing some very good responses there. That it kind of, and I've sent some patients to you in second line for Duritzlecan. It to me it feels that before you jump into first line, I still think there's a sequencing question that we haven't answered. And you're right. I mean, if you look at the TOGA trial, how are we doing this for ten years? And and I think with the immunotherapy combinations of lags. It makes you wonder that we've always thought that the HER2 positive are not, um, the immune landscape is not particularly good. It's like a cold tumor. So, so what is what are these um, bivalent drugs doing? What is margotoxin doing to make that any different in a, what I call a very clonal way? So unlike my MSI subgroup, there is no, unless you're MMR deficient gastric, it's a messy, messy microenvironment. So, so do you really think that we should be pushing straight into a chemo-free regimen because beacon wasn't great for bowel cancer, to be honest, you know, and I well, just I, 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 What I would say is for the uh, margatuximab uh, anti-PD-1 study, there is a safe, there is a run-in. They didn't jump straight to a phase three uh, mm. for the double positive population. And margatuximab is optimized in terms of its FC gamma expression to stimulate the innate immune response as well as uh, an acquired immune response. So I think it's possible that it could overcome some of those uh, difficulties which are in the kind of immune-evasive nature of the uh, kind of chromosomally unstable, unstable high uh, copy number gain tumors uh, that, okay. that, that way but but you know what i i think the sequencing question is very true and i would absolutely love to be in a position in five years time to have the luxury of sequencing anti-hair2 therapies for gastric cancer patients who are her2 positive uh, i think that would be brilliant because we've you know we've learned a lot it's it's literally only been in the past two to three years that we realized that these patients at least a third of them do not benefit, uh, do cannot possibly benefit in the second line setting because they are no longer dependent on HER2 signaling. And, and, and this is emergent. And I'm sure that we will also, uh, I'm sure that we will learn about the integration of immune checkpoint blockade too. But I agree that, that you know, uh, certainly I wouldn't throw chemotherapy out with the bathwater uh, immediately. And, and, and it certainly would need careful thought, even if it was a licensed treatment, you would still do careful clinical patient selection, I think. And I think that's something, as Natalia alluded to, that we learned very strongly with the immunotherapy studies in gastric cancer. Well, oh, I, I think it's a good problem to have to have many different therapies yeah. and we'll be able to sequence from. And I think um, the the interesting thing about DS8201 and HER2 drug, the antibody drug conjugate, that in breast cancer, they see responses in those patients who have lower expression of HER2. So we may be able to identify more patients who benefit because this is not a true, it's not a drug that turns off necessarily a signal. And that's an, that's an antibody drug conjugate that uses HER2 receptor as a way, at least that's what I explain to my patients, as a way to bring chemo into the right location, right? So you might not need as much HER2. And so it may be an option for patients who are not candidate for these other uh, anti-HER2 agents as well, That's but we need more data. 
really good point. And I think the data for the HER2 low for TDXD was presented at ESMO. I can't remember, but I think the response rate was something like 20% in the HER2 2 plus, but the HER2 1 plus, it was, it was negligible, again, in the Asian population. So uh, yeah, absolutely worth, worth chasing for those patients too. That's a really good point. But Lizzie, we, the last few meetings we talked about immunotherapy, gastric cancer, and PDA1, TMB, MSI. Um, I think the Japanese really um, gave us some hints on what other biomarkers we can use, particularly the, the DELIVER trial. Um, the Japanese group um, presented on the gut microbiome in response to um, Nivolumab. Um, what are your thoughts, comments? Do we need to take pool samples um, in, in future for all uh, our patients? So I, I, I found that, <laughs> thanks, Toby. I found this. So first of all, the Japanese are so far ahead of us in terms of immune checkpoint blockade for gastric cancer. They've had Nivolumab licensed for a number of years in chemorefractory patients based on the results of attraction two, whereas unfortunately we did not have that in Europe. Uh, and the states have had pembrolizumab for a number of years based on Keynote 059. So what they've done in, in Deliver is, you know, we've we've seen data presented before in other immune sensitive populations, melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, that the gut microbiome may be a predictor of response to immune checkpoint blockade. So what they have done in a nice prospective manner is looked at the data for, I think there were 200 patients in the uh, ex exploratory data set and then validated that in a second data set. I find the analysis of the gut microbiome genomics extremely complex and I won't claim any special expertise in it. But what they did was identify two gen genus of bacteria that seem to be more associated with response to nivolumab. That said, the number of responders was quite small, so it was difficult to be, you know, precise in, in the estimate. I think so. If you look, so in general, we think that the gut microbiome might relate to immune checkpoint blockade through probably different bacteria causing expression of short-chain fatty acids, which influence T cells. And one of the challenges of interpreting that data is that most uh, groups who do this work seem to use a different methodology, and they all end up with different. They do end up with different results, but that doesn't mean that those results are not valid. It's just that we don't have a standardized approach to this. And the main question is, is this something that exists that causes that patient to be a patient who is likely to respond to pembrolizumab or nivolumab? Or is it something that we can manipulate and cause in other patients uh, to happen? So we know in mouse models, actually, if we take a fecal transplant from responding nude mice who, who will respond to immune checkpoint blockade, that we can cause non-responding mice to uh, to to respond. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do fecal transplants for our patients. I don't think we're there yet. But there, these are questions that could be asked prospectively, certainly. And it, it, we, all I, I can say is that we can see an association. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I tell all my patients on immunotherapy to have yogurts and kefir and, and whatever they can do to help their gut microbiome based on very little evidence, but I don't think it's likely to do them any harm. So uh, I'm not sure. Does anyone have, does anyone else do that? Lizzie, all I'd say is I think there are some data from MD Anderson or on the East Coast. They are doing fecal transplant for melanoma patients and it seems to work. So it's coming. I suppose... 
our general feeling as GR oncologists is that your gut is a little bit messed up already <laughs> from having a bowel cancer or gastric stuff. And so we don't know. And um, I think it's like, I just had a patient who recently said, if I change my diet completely, do I not need to have adjuvant chemo and get a certain percentage of survival by not smoking and, and eating a vegan? And I said, I don't know that data. And I'm not sure we could say, if you feel good eating a yakul or, or a migrant, fine, do it. <laughs> but I'm not sure that will get you to respond to an immunotherapy checkpoint. I, I totally agree, but I think it's probably not likely to do any harm. So I don't yeah. know. I should be practicing a more evidence-based medicine. What do Natalia and Toby think? Natalia, what do you think? I'm going to start recommending yogurt and kefir for my patients after this. Case. Yeah, absolutely. No, but I, I think what we learned from the melanoma groups, um, certainly the use of antibiotics, for example, we yes. are, as oncologists yeah. trained so quickly mm -hmm. to use antibiotics. Stop it, hold fire. And because that really in melanoma patient had an impact and with little intervention, it's sometimes spreading, you know, rather than paying whatever and prescribing drugs, which, which costs you fortunes. And with little interventions, let's work towards this, include our patients into these national trials. Um, but but I, I think very important things to consider. Natalia, for you, 2020 must have been a firework of um, you know, success and um, simply for these very rare tumor type, particularly um, intrahepatic cholangio um, carcinoma, two drugs approved. And again, the GIAS for this year really kind of summarized some of those and dig a bit deeper into this. Infigratinib, new um, kit on the block, the FGFR inhibitor, and talk us through. And, you know, particularly I'm interested, I've, I've been heavily involved in the Tio compound TAS120. And um, I want to know where's the difference between the, the two drugs, which um, one um, would I give my patients? Do I treat one patient before first line and then second line, rescue them with another? Um, molecule. So I, I think lots to learn um, at this um, ESGM ASCO. Yeah, so cholangiocarcinoma has become a poster child for precision oncology in GI cancers. It's, it's our form of lung cancer where we actually sequence and get results that are actionable. So it's about, you know, 15%, as I alluded to earlier, of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas that have FGFR2 fusion. And we now know that going after the FGFR2 fusion with small molecule inhibitors. Um, makes people uh, live longer and um, improves patients' survival. There's a drug already approved for that indication, pamigatinib. Uh, but there's an other FGFI inhibitors in development. One of them is infogratinib. Um, the results of the study with infogratinib were presented at GISCO, but there's also other ones, uh, futibatinib, uh, TAS120, the drug from, um, from Taiho, as well as is another FGFR inhibitor. TAS120 or futibatinib is the only uh, covalent inhibitor, irreversible inhibitor. The other inhibitors are reversible. So I think that would distinguish TAS120 from the other inhibitors. Um, but all of the data with these inhibitors um, comes from phase two studies. So they're relatively small studies. And I think logistically that's, um, that's what we can achieve in a reasonable time with these, with these drugs in this rare patient population. And so the study with infogratinib with another phase two study of patients with advanced cholangiocarcinoma who have progressed or were intolerant to, to gemcitabine and cisplatin. And this was a, an 108 patient study, a comparable in size to other phase two studies. Uh, patients received infogratinib on an, uh, three, three weeks on, one week off schedule, which is again, slightly different to the way TAS120 is given, which is 
in uh, the study was test one to one, your futinibad inhibit is given on a continuous schedule. Um, and um, the response rate was uh, promising in this phase two study it was 23%. Um, Progression-free survival was 7.3 7 months, which is again, comparable to the other inhibitors in the market. You cannot do, as, as we all know, you can't do cross trial comparisons. However, their overall response rate of 23% was slightly lower to what we have seen with other inhibitors. And again, you can dig into the patient population. Maybe this patient population was more heavily pretreated. It was about 46% who's had um, uh, up to one prior line of therapy as opposed to 60, 61% in the study with pemigatinib. But again, the, the numbers are too small to really um, make any final conclusions from that. And um, uh, and both of, and all of the studies are are, are still uh, still the studies are small and you can't compare across studies, but progression free survival was similar was seven point three months. Um, the overall survival was was lower again from compared to what we've seen with uh, pemigatinib, where the overall survival was close to two years. The overall survival with this drug was twelve months. Um, I think Toby bring up a good point. You know, we have now all of these inhibitors coming on the market. You know, one of them is FDA approved, and the other ones are not yet. The question will be, which one is better? How do we select the right inhibitor for the patient? And we really don't know. I think there's some data that was presented by and published by Dr. Goyal from MGH that showed that TAS120 has some activity even when the patients have been pretreated with other inhibitors. But again, these are small, small studies and single institution experiences. Uh, and so that's that's the question. Can we sequence them? Is the mechanism of resistance difference? Um, and also the you know toxicity, which will help us decide which inhibitors to use. These are all good questions to which we don't have any answers. Well, yet. I, I think you know absolutely you're absolutely right. This early early data, but consistent data. I think consistent in terms of toxicity profile, hyperphosphate, tumor, stomatitis nail changes, all these um, um, classical FGFR. That's why I was quite intrigued that the antibody didn't have hypophosphatemia. So effectively hitting the target on a different way from an antibody point of view versus a small um, molecule point of view is, is certainly um, different. What I was wondering, um, we, and, and you kind of alluded to very early on, um, on the different rearrangements, fusion partners, do you see any, so TAC1 being, or TAC3 being the most common ones, and do you see different um, response rates? Or again, too early to say. There is no difference. And this was published from Pemigatinib. There is no difference in activity um, with respect to the partner that FGFR2 is fused with. We see activity across different partners. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, let's move on to Clarity, um, uh, another big success story, story from last year. It was sitting up in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Um, talk us through, and um, in particular, I'm, I'm interested in the duration of response and um, duration on treatment, and, and then aspects of um, quality of life, and particularly because they were presented at, at GIASCO. Mm -hmm. And so Clarity was a randomized phase three trial that enrolled patients with IDH1 mutant cholangiocarcinoma who have progressed on first-line chemotherapy. And in this trial, patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to either IDH1 inhibitor, avazidinib, or placebo. And placebo was an appropriate control arm when the study was launched because we did not have any data for second-line therapies back then. 
And this study, um, which enrolled about 180 patients, um, allowed crossover upon progression from the placebo arm. So there were um, 60 patients in the placebo arm and 70% of, of those patients were able to cross over. Um, so the primary endpoint because of that crossover was progression-free survival. And progression-free survival was significantly improved with uh, the treatment of IDH1 inhibitor. Although the numbers are, if you look at the absolute numbers, they're, they're low, they're like 2.7 versus 1.4 months. Um, and so it's, it's hard to get excited when you look at these absolute numbers. However, if you look at progression-free survival rates at six months or 12 months, you do see, I think, clinically meaningful activity. You know, a third of patients had, were free of progression at six months in the experimental arm as opposed to none in a placebo arm, and over 20% were progression-free at, at a year. And so, you know, I, I think it is an active drug and having used this drug in clinic and having seen how people have done on this drug, I, I think it does provide clinically meaningful benefit to our patients in part because it is so well tolerated. It's an oral drug, that has limited toxicities. And as you're alluding to, Tabi, they, they did present quality of life data and it has shown that the pain scores were better than in functional activity was better in patients who were on an experimental drug as opposed to placebo. So we are providing, I think, a clinically meaningful benefit to patients with this drug. The overall survival data was, um, the, abs the absolute numbers were different in, in the uh, experimental arm versus placebo arm, but they were not statistically significant and in part because of that crossover. And they did this fancy statistical analysis, which uh, rank preserving structural failure time. I had to write it down for myself and I can't claim that I understand how it's done, but this was something that was pre-planned to account for the fact that the placebo arm will do better. And when they, when they used this analysis, then they did see a statistically significant difference in OS between the experimental arm and the placebo arm, because in placebo arm, the OS was five months with, 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 with that. and double No, no PFS2. No PFS2 in this um, study. I'm just um, no, um, yes, making a yes, little no. joke. Uh, no. The um, other, and we discussed the drug, Sanitaramab in cholangiocarcinoma, also a big story, a small, big story in a small study, but um, I, I think interesting data. Um, in cholangiocarcinoma, talk, talk us through Zanidaramab um, as well. So just to, to wrap this drug up, it has really had very different subgroups, um, including um, the 21 patients um, in cholangiocarcinoma. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's the same drug we just let Lizzie just discuss in upper GI cancers. It's a dual antibody that probably engages some immune, uh, immune um, uh, activity of our own immune system against the cancer cells. And it was a, a small study with her two positive uh, cholangiocarcinoma and a single drug demonstrated some activity. I think there were like 40% response rate. Um, yeah, confirmed response rate was 47% in a tiny studies. But again, you know, I, I think we have a rare disease, a small percentage of patients even have her two expressions. So I think it would be a challenge. How do we decide that this drug is actually, is that approval is warranted for these particular drugs that are geared to such a small percentage of patients, and yet we do see some activity in these small studies. Certainly, you need a you need a larger study, but I was excited to see this type of activity in these patients. Similar to gastric cancer, but also these patients were pretreated with trastuzumab, some of them, which is also interesting. 
Um, yeah, no, and, and it's I can ask this question. What Mike Passmer has shown with pertuzumab and interceptin. And um, so effectively reassuring that the biology, which we so often, as you know, in like, let's say about BRAF and colorectal and melanoma, different biology, but here it seems to be that at least luckily, and we could talk about BRAF and cholangiocarcinoma as well, the BRAF mutations, it is a very similar biology to the drugs approved in, in various other settings as well. Kakin. Just a general question for Natalia because of the interesting for in Kalanji. So I work with Professor Bridgewater at UCH and we get a lot of second opinions where patients are literally just buying their own profile from somewhere. And then they come to the clinic and say, mm -hmm. what does this show? And, and often we say, mm, not the right profile for that trial or that study. In America, and I don't know, Lizzie, how you find it at Adam Brooks with your academic pathway. Um, what what is the general recommendation now for the patient who is out there not linked in with an academic center, desperate looking at this data? I've got patients trying to log on to ASCO GI and ASCO, and they, they just want to be profiled. So I'm just interested, particularly with all this difference in FGFR of all these drugs, and you're never going to do phase three trials still, I think. What? How do you manage your patients who outside of a trial come to you with a profile and then you have to tell them or decide whether, in fact, you have to spend another many thousands of pounds or dollars for another profile. What, what is the best way to manage uh, our patients? So I think in the US, we, we do have most of our patients have access to uh, platforms for next generation sequencing. You know, in my practice, I never look only for FGFR2 or only for IDH1. We do these large platforms. But that what platform? Because, because a lot of... Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. FDA approved platforms and, and they come off trials. And then a lot of companies are just kind of piggybacking a bit and saying, well, we can also do very similar things. I mean, we're using a lot of foundation medicine, KRS and Tampas in the US. And, you know, I use Garden 360 in my practice and patients who don't have enough tissue, which is frequently an issue for patients with extra hepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And these uh, liquid biopsies are starting to be incorporated as eligibility criteria into clinical trials. It was an issue two to three years ago you couldn't use, you couldn't really make clinical decision based on these or even enroll patients in trials, but they are allowed now for clinical studies. So, you know, I, I feel like, and I do see patients from the community for second opinion, the majority of my patients with cholangiocarcinoma become, come, come in with, with full profiles so we can make decisions based on that, that, inform that, that information is, um, is available for the review and it's, it's a full panel, usually has, you know, a microcellular instability, TMB, amplifications, fusions, done early during the course of that disease, usually at the time of, you know, in my practice, my patients get NGS testing done at the time of diagnosis of advanced disease. Great, it has been a very good discussion. I must say we really covered everything um, in, in just a bit more over one hour, colorectal, gastric, um, and biliary. I'm, I'm, I, I think we can, can wrap it up here. Um, I know there are other data, of course, of, of interest, pancreatic cancer, but I, I think we keep it for the next session, um, probably around ASCO and um, ask BJ Oncology um, to have the same panel on again and, and discuss and the key, key highlights. It has been a real pleasure. And um, I want to thank you very much. And um, good luck for 2021. And stay healthy, get vaccinated. Um, another really important thing um, for this year. Thank you so thank much, you. guys. Thank, thank you so you. much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for right, inviting bye. me. Bye-bye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this GI Cancer session with VJ Oncology. 
If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so that we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.